Welcome to the Inside Digital Transformation Podcast. Inside Digital Transformation explores how organizations of every size and shape are using technology today to survive and thrive in the face of relentless change. If you are a business or technology leader charged with making the most of digital transformation in your organization, then this podcast is for you. And now here's your host, Alan Bernard, a technology journalist, editor, and copywriter who has been covering the intersection of business and technology for over two decades. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Today I'm speaking with Forrester analyst Rowan Curran about the hottest topic in tech today, which is the AI chatbot, ChatGPT. We're going to get into what it is, what it isn't, which is sentient or intelligent, and we're going to explore the outsized impact it is about to have on how we all interact with technology both at work and in our daily lives. So Rowan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, today we're talking about ChatGPT. Um, but more to the point, uh, you know, I don't want to focus strictly on that. I want to think about generative AI and kind of the Pandora's box that chat GPT has opened for everybody, including myself. Um, when I came across chat GPT, I was really floored and I was late to the party. I didn't, I didn't see it until about three weeks ago. It, it really, I think is a true, uh, bit of a game changer, right? Paradigm shift and how people think about AI, think about what it's capable of. It has really opened that door to people's imaginations as much as anything of what's possible, yeah. right? Uh, with yeah, this, absolutely. Like, mm-hmm. These technologies. Um, so I want to explore that, right? Uh, so, but, but I think really we have to start with what is chat GPT, right? Uh, and, and, you know, in layman's terms, obviously. Uh, and see, even though it's fairly well explained in a lot of different places, right? We still should cover some of that ground. So why don't we go there? We'll start. What is it? And then we'll just we'll just go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So chat GPT is based upon a large language model. And a large language model is a class of models that essentially uses a very, very large underlying uh, set of data that is combined as a, a broad set of data that uh, you know, involves, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, no. So I was going to say that's, those, that's, everybody refers to that as parameters, right? Uh, so when we're talking about parameters, parameters are basically uh, what has been derived from that data set that the model is actually using to uh, relate different topics to each other. So okay. um, metaphorically, you could think about parameters being uh similar to neurons. So it's not a one-to-one relationship, but um, if you think about human biological neurons, um, you know, the more neurons you have involved in a task, you know, the greater kind of the emergent capability. And it's similar um, when you look at these large language models. Uh, so, you know, the first uh, large language models that came out in 2018, the first paper that was published around these things came out in 2017. The first large language model itself was published in 2018. So these are still relatively wow. new. Yeah, that is um, new. That had, uh, you know, I believe it was just over 100 million, maybe 117 million parameters. I could yeah, be wrong. Like it could be a couple yeah. hundred no, million. I just actually, no, I just saw it uh, on my research. It was 100 million. So. Okay. So, you know, uh, and, you know, and now we have, uh, you know, the 3.5 series um, from uh, OpenAI has, you know, uh, billions and billions of parameters. Yeah. And, you know, we are uh, quickly on the road to getting to, you know, trillions of parameters. Um, and uh, it's a very real possibility, um, though, you know, there may be some uh, bumps along the way to that. But, uh, you know, when we're looking at these models, overall, the thing to 
uh, remember about them is basically what they're doing is they're taking this vast underlying supply of knowledge and then relating all of that knowledge uh, to itself. So similar to the way that, you know, uh, a person, you know, takes in experiences over the course of their life, they learn things, these models relate a huge set of data to each other and then uh, will try to respond to prompts that are submitted to them. Now, the way that these models uh, respond to prompts, so say a question that you're submitting to ChatGPT, is that they are trying to guess what the next, next best word in that uh, sentence would be. So mm -hmm. while that can result in very accurate and uh, very human-like responses, um, ultimately, this is what also leads it to, you know, doing things like creating coherent nonsense and uh, generating hallucinations that many mm -hmm. of us have seen in the media. And a hallucination uh, being just some made up dream state answer that really has no basis in reality, right? Yes. And uh, and one of the problems with these things is that they're so confidently communicated that it uh, can be very hard to identify them if you don't actually know what the, uh, mm -hmm. the underlying claim is. So, you know, the large language model is the fundamental component of ChatGPT, um, as well as, you know, uh, Lambda um, from uh, Google. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's yeah. a number of others out there. Which uh, is the foundation of BART? I think uh, there... It may be. It is unclear whether that it, it they okay. claim it is. There may be some other version of the model. It's unclear what the exact okay. pipeline is. Um, okay. But then there's, you know, uh, Cohere and A21 and a few other uh folks that are building their own foundation models and making them available. NVIDIA has Megatron. Um, there's a number mm -hmm. of them out there. Yeah. But uh, when we're looking at an application like ChatGPT, the large language model is just the first piece. Then additionally, there's a couple other layers wrapped around it. One of those layers is what is called uh, reinforcement from human feedback. Um, and essentially, that is a way of refining the model and improving its answers through uh, telling it how it's doing and responding to queries. So mm -hmm. uh, once the model is trained, you can kind of think of it as a, you know, um, a, a small child who, you know, has never actually had conversations with folks, but knows a lot of things. And then you have a bunch of conversations with it and it learns about how humans talk to each other. And mm -hmm. ChatGPT, you know, has had millions of people having, you know, uh, probably hundreds of millions of conversations with it. So that reinforcement layer um, for ChatGPT is quite strong. Um, oh, so it's learning from everything I type in. Every conversation I have with it, is it learning from that? It, it is learning, um, yes. And then also, uh, you know, the thumbs up and the thumbs down that you can give on the answers, um, mm -hmm. that is also providing feedback uh, to it as to whether that answer was you know, high quality or okay. not. Okay. And, and but before this model was launched, they were using actual humans to do that. Right. Uh, to refine the model before they launched it, uh, people were actually sitting down and interacting with. Yes, correct. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things about all these models is, you know, uh, in addition to doing that kind of baseline layer of training, you do have to the like the, tr you know, the unsupervised training where you just give all the um, the data sets to it. You then have to do all this uh, uh, conversation training on top of it. And, you know, one of the things that OpenAI has gotten from its release of ChatGPT is basically, you know, the biggest crowdsourced engine for doing this reinforcement learning that, mm -hmm. you know, anyone could have ever imagined. Um, and especially, you know, okay. uh, the swath of um, humanity that they're probably getting access to in terms of the way that people uh, ask questions and uh, respond to these things is is much more diverse than I uh, can imagine they would ever have been able to get from some kind of, you know, commercial um, 
you know, uh, Mechanical Turk. I wonder if they knew that when they launched it, if it was going to be like this. Maybe so they had an idea. It, it, it's from uh, what I understand from, uh, you know, what I've read um, from sort of their internal discussions around this, that it was very uh, divided about how the public would respond to this. Um, I don't think that anybody expected it to be the level of, you know, uh, like it has become the cultural zeitgeist of the past three oh, months. Um, and, uh, and, it, and no one really saw that coming um, in, ter in terms of this being the thing. Um, but I want to get back to kind of what ChatGPT is, because I sure. think it's, yeah, it, yeah. it's important to like kind of get all these pieces together because okay. it's not just the model. It's not just that layer of reinforcement learning. It's also that application experience wrapped around the top. So the fact that it is just, you know, a web service that you go up to um, with just an internet connection and you type in a question and you get an answer, you know, initially it was, you know, lickety split. Now, obviously there's different rates of response, but the fact that you are able to have this very smooth human-like interaction that is very disarming, I think is deeply, deeply compelling. And to me, that is what made, you know, uh, this take off to the degree that it did it was not just, you know, uh, having the model, because, you know, we had, the, you know, uh, several of the 3.5 series of models available through the OpenAI playground for several months before this. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the reinforcement through human feedback layer that had been coming along for a while, but um, you know, as an internal thing they were working on. But um, it was really when they wrapped this all up together in an application that was a very compelling experience to everyone that this became, you know, the phenomenon that it is now. So the interface is really what broke it open. It's the interface com combined with the technology. It's the overall application experience. And I think that that, uh, the reason I'm putting so much emphasis on that is because I think that that also speaks to what is going to make the future of these uh, tech technology experiences compelling is when people build, you know, uh, full-bodied uh, applications that have a reason to exist, that, you mm. know, solve a problem, mm. that meet mm -hmm. a need that people uh, had and and um, and weren't able to get met anywhere else. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that uh, ChatGPT took off is because it met that need for so many different people because it's a language model. And I think that that's, you know, the big difference here is the language models, because they're trained on a broad set of, you know, uh, language data. And because language itself is so flexible, that is what kind of allows them to be, uh, you know, more uh, uh, intuitive, not more intuitive, um, but I guess more flexible, I guess I'm going to use that word again, is, okay. is the way to put it. Because, you know, with most machine learning models, they're good for doing like one thing, predicting, you know, whether a customer is going to churn or identifying a particular image in a in a um, in a photo or something like that. Whereas these models can be applied to much more generalized tasks, um, at least in the realm of language, than um, most other models can be. Now, that can also be very deceptive because uh, they're really good at trying to predict, like I said, you know, the next word in the sentence. When you start asking it things about, you know, uh, that involve, you know, things like calculations or, you know, complex questions, it will try to guess the next best word in the sentence based upon, you know, the feedback that it's gotten in the past, its training data, not necessarily what is the most factual answer to that question. So that is what can lead to, you know, some really off the rails answers that feel 
very, uh, very assertive because the model doesn't have any way of understanding when it's wrong. And that is uh, one of the issues with these large language models is they're very, very powerful, but currently there is not a, a good way to actually look inside of them and identify where particular facts are being uh, derived from within their knowledge base, or even to go in and say, hey, that thing is wrong don't respond with that fact again. Um, and you can try and do that. Well, isn't, um, so, that what the re, but isn't that what the reinforcement learning is for? Yes. Is so you can, you can, you can do that uh, with the reinforcement layer, but it can still lead to confusions. So in okay. January, there was um, an issue uh, where, and I don't know if this is still an issue because I've not gone back to ask it this mm -hmm. question in a month or two, um, but it was responding to uh questions about Elon Musk saying that he was the CEO of Twitter and was also not the CEO of Twitter at mm -hmm. the same time because the training data goes up to the end of 2021 right where obviously he was not the CEO of Twitter but then you know 2022 happened and somehow in that reinforcement data it started to learn that Elon Musk was the CEO of Twitter but that conflicted with part of the information in the underlying data set so it came out with confused responses sometimes um okay so yeah, i've been saying to people i've been chatting with about this <laughs> no pun intended um that it's it's not that you know it, it's data stops at 2021 but what i'm learning from you is because it's learning as a from us right now in real time that that's not the case correct yes and there's and the reason that it's only trained up until the end of 2021. Well, there's a couple of reasons, but one of the big reasons and one of the reasons that would apply to other companies building their own model like this is because it's so expensive to actually run the compute to actually train the model itself. Um, yeah, we're going to get into that because I saw an interview with Qualcomm CEO. <laughs> it was very yeah, interesting. He's yeah, talking about it, these things running on smartphones someday maybe but um, <laughs> he seemed pretty confident but but that that's his job and there's, right? and there's a difference between uh training the models and running them for inferences those are two very okay. distinct things so all right well we'll yeah. touch on that in a minute so but a large language model is what it's just a, a form of ai right it, it's a, well can you kind of put that into context what that, what that a large means? language model is a uh, a machine learning model that uses transformer networks to build this model. And essentially, generative pre-trained transformers, the GPT and mm -hmm. chat yep. GPT, um, essentially are a way of doing deep learning that instead of, so in traditional deep learning, you have like multiple layers of quote unquote neurons that uh, between each layer, you derive features from the underlying layer. So essentially, mm -hmm. if you have like, you know, uh, a picture of a dog and you're trying to derive concepts from that, you know, some of the features that you would derive might be, you know, brown or like, you know, uh, several twisted pixels next to each other. That would be like the curly dog hair or something like that. Yeah. So you derive yeah. features that would identify that as a dog. So what a generative, what a, what a generative pre-trained transformer does is it looks at, uh, many of those features at once rather than just looking at uh, a few of them or one of them. So it is able to have attention across many different features that allows it to have a much broader contextual understanding of the data that's being trained on um, as compared to previous models. So that's okay. essentially what it is overall is it's just a machine learning model that has this that has been trained on this very, very large data set 
that um, you know is able to uh, have a, a deeper semantic understanding across the data um, set itself. Uh, deeper semantic understanding faster, it sounds like, right? It sounds like the other models might get you there, but it might take a lot longer. Uh, what do you mean by faster? Well, I was thinking the comparison. So if it's looking at, at more than one aspect or attribute at a time, it's kind of running things in parallel, right? Well, it, that's the training part. So okay. when it's, it's not, the parallelization doesn't necessarily matter for speed. It matters for okay. what the end result model uh, capability is. So okay. the end result model has a greater understanding across all of these different domains than a single model would train the, in the traditional way. You know, for this call, that's plenty. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to dive any deeper because I can't. I don't know how. Uh, so I'm still a little want to go back to parameters because this this term keeps popping up. And, and you see you're equating that to neurons, but how does that relate back to these LLMs? Because I think the, there's the, this word parameter is starting to be used interchangeably with LLM in many ways, at least some of the lay it's some of the stuff I'm seeing. So at least that's how interpreting what I'm seeing. So I had not heard these being used interchangeably. So parameters are a an aspect of large language models. Okay. So you wouldn't like say, you know, Rowan's brain weighs X number of pounds as a way of like referring to me. Okay. Like, so when we talk about the number of parameters, we are like broadly talking about the level of capability of the model. There's not like a okay. linear relationship between okay. the number of parameters and the level of performance of the model, but like generally you can okay. kind of think about th them being related. So the greater the number of parameters, the, the greater the performance of the model will be in terms of it being able to respond to queries more effectively. It, it does it help at all to think of a parameter as a data point? No, I think that would take okay. people in the wrong direction if they thought okay. of parameters as individual data points. Yeah. Okay. Because they're what is derived from the data points. Interesting. Okay. So like you wouldn't say like a a neuron in your brain is like a data point about like, you know, a car or a house. Right. It knows something about a car or a house. It's right? an aspect of. Yeah. Or it like holds, it has so a, one neuron holds an aspect of that. Uh, idea of a house it's not contained in a single neuron it requires multiple neurons to connect to create the image of a house or the uh, even the idea of a house yes right? this is, again yes this is a better way of thinking about than the data points again we're using metaphors so not perfect yeah, well, I think, I mean, I, but yeah. i think that's a much better way of thinking about it um okay. than the data point yeah, yeah and so the way to interpret these models as they're being discussed um is you know the the megatron is i think there were i think it was 500 plus billion parameters uh, at the moment or something. Um, this is from a month ago, a Stanford thing I was watching on YouTube. Yeah, now, Megatron is is quite large. I can't remember the number of parameters off the top. Of but, but it seems to be the that. measure that, that people are throwing around to give an idea of power, basically, or capability. Yes, yeah, yeah. That okay. is the general, right. like people are using it as a measure of capability, even though it's not like strictly one-to-one -one match of like, oh, we added 100 Right. percent more parameters were a hundred percent more effective um the gains are oh, interesting the yeah, gains are not marginal at this point but they're less than like a a one-to-one -one increase okay so 100 um, billion parameters isn't necessarily more capable than i don't know 
pick a number, 100 million parameters. Well, a, a, a hundred billion parameters is not necessarily twice as effective as 50 million parameters. There you go. Thank you. That's yeah, awesome. yeah. Okay. Because yeah. it's just too many moving parts in between, right? Okay. Um, all right. So one of the thing, one of the comparisons I heard with chat GPT is, especially when people try to convince you that it's sentient, is it's just, you know, this is a very simplified explanation, but it's just really good at stringing words together. Yes. Right. And, uh, yeah. And, and yeah. It's, it's, it, I think it, it just doesn't do it justice. But at the end of the day, is that really what it's basically doing? So as far as we can tell, yes, there is also a big and there as well. Okay. So one of the so at their core, these things are n-gram generators. So they're just trying to guess what is the next most likely word in this sequence. But also, <laughs> okay. um, there okay. is research going on into interrogating sort of what is going on inside of these models, because we really don't know, because mm -hmm. neural networks are essentially a black box at this point in time. There's been lots of work to kind of like, deconvolute them and things like that, but large language models, we don't know. But uh, there has been some initial work in kind of trying to understand by observation what is happening inside of these models. So there was a paper that came out last fall that looked at uh, basically teaching, I can't remember what the base model was, but they taught it to observe uh, Othello games to see whether it could infer what the next move should be. And, and that's the game with the black, white, you flip them over yes, and try yeah. to get, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like Go, um, yeah. but you know, a little bit different for anybody. A simpler version, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and what they found was that the model seemed to be building an internal representation of what the rules for Othello are without actually being told what the rules are by only observing the games. So what they okay. did was they basically showed it a bunch of games and then showed it games where illegal moves were played and then asked it or where the board setup was legal rather. And they asked it for what the next move was. And instead of just saying, oh, well, you know, based upon the sequence of images, I assume the next one would be this. It actually uh, took a move that was based upon, you know, an internally constructed rule set um, hmm. based upon its previous observations. And so what was indicated from that initial study was that there is actually an internal world model within these language models that is constructed when you train them to build that world model, which implies that they could then uh, be taught down the road to understand very complex um, uh, processes and procedures eventually. So if you know the model can understand like Othello and how it works and things like that, in addition to all its other capabilities, you can imagine that if you could then train it to say, you know, understand, you know, complex supply chain flows or even, you know, um, uh, digital workflows or uh, fraud identification or anything like that. Chemistry. Uh, yeah, chemistry. Right. Yes. Um, Reactions, yeah, right? yeah uh, like uh, cell biology, things like that. So down the road, this isn't something we can do with these large language models today, but the indicators are that down the road, we can really train them on very complex um, processes with just examples, um, and then ask them things about those processes. Um, okay, let me stop here. I want to jump back to the Othello thing. Yeah, you said it learned from an illegal setup of the board. Is that no? It learned from from legal rule setups, and then it was shown a regular a regular game setup and an illegal game setup, and it was asked sort of what it was supposed to do. Okay. 
And it did the right thing. It did the right thing according to the rules. Essentially, it was given a choice and it made the choice that uh, demonstrated that it had an idea of what the rule set for Othello was rather than just looking at a set of pictures and saying, what should the next picture be? Okay. Oh, interesting. All right. And and that's without ever being told what those rules Correct. Were it learned from time. examples of previous game states. Yeah. Okay. So how could that and so and that's so that's the type of learning that could be applied in in some of the things we just talked about, right? Understanding yes. complex it, supply it, chains, making yeah. predictions that are based on, you know, past learnings like we do as humans, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then you start to think about this could go even farther um, now that we have kind of the glimmerings of multimodal large language models, uh, which are large language models that don't just take uh, text as input and text as output, but can also use images, audio, and other types of content. Oh, interesting. I never even thought about that. Chat GPT is only trained on text. Well, so this is a, this is a very new thing. So there was a paper that was just published last Monday, I think. Um uh, that was looking at these. And so this is still very cutting edge, but uh, essentially you can interact. So exactly what you're saying. So think of chat GPT, but you know, you can give it an image of like, you know, a photo you took of a pond and say, Hey, you know, like what species of bird are there on this pond? And why do you think so? Um, or like, you know, uh, give it an image of like uh, a particular car and say, Hey, you know, like, is there a dent on this? Um, huh. And getting answers like that. So things that it, we take for granted as humans. Yes. Right. Because, you know, yeah. you may hear a sound. Here's, you know, you may smell in particular, right? I don't think you can train it on smell, but who the hell knows at this point, right? Um, but, you know, as a human, you smell something. That's one of the most powerful memory uh, mm-hmm. joggers. I don't know what the right word would be, but recall mechanisms for yeah. memory is smell. And so, and then hearing audibles and then vision, I think, is even maybe third on that list. But, uh, but smell in particular. And so it just, if it's learning those associations, right? And it knows that a pond is typically a body of water that you find in a certain geographical location. It's going to have these types of, uh, this type of vegetation. Therefore, it's going to have this type of, you know, biosphere, which is going to support this level of higher, uh, you know, of, of uh, hunters, uh, predators, which yeah, are birds, yeah. right? And so, but it has to make all of those leaps to get to the point where what kind of birds are going to be on this pond, right? But also, well, no, it's that, and it's also able to look at the image and say, well, you know, there, I see, you know, there's a, a yellow beak that has, you know, a black spot at the top of it. And then there's also, you know, a red head crest. Um, well, but see, I and, see, and, I see then, you asking this question, with just the image of the pond and no birds in sight. Oh, so, so, okay. So yeah. So I would say what birds would be on this pond. Would be on this pond. Yes. Not what birds so both are. Of those because things. you can do that yeah. today with Google Lens. I can take a picture of a bird and it'll tell me what kind of bird it is. You know what I mean? No, yes. I, I'm saying like both of these things. So like the multimodal nature of it to be more complex like that. So saying yeah. like, okay, you know, so yes, both of those things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think you make a great point that, you know, it, the whole, and it said in the abstract, you know, one of the points of this paper is to kind of take language models outside of the prison of uh, written language, um, because that mm-hmm. is a very limited way of understanding the human experience. Um sure. So I think that uh, what you were just saying about, you know, what happens when we're able to do it with smell? And I, I think we will be able to, you know, fold in some type of olfactory data 
it's into just molecules. Yeah. Ultimately, so, at the end of the day, being hitting receptors in your nose and your brain interprets it as an orange or some, you know, a leaf or whatever it is, right? Or, exactly. Or, and we already have things like, you know, alcohols and things like that that are, you know, able to predict, you know, protein shapes and whatnot. So I think, you know, that in the next five, 10 years, uh, maybe, maybe closer to the five year mark, that right. we will have multimodal language models that are uh, maybe haptic maybe olfactory uh maybe uh auditory, auditory. yeah uh, now how about motion capture on 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 the physical body and the way way physical bodies move right uh you know you can input that data yes right? yeah and, absolutely and then, yeah. and then they could watch someone walking down the street and make a, a do a gait analysis of somebody something i have familiarity with yeah and and then make a um uh, a um on a prognosis what is it when doctors you go to the doctor diagnosis diagnose and make yes. a diagnosis based yeah. on that right i mean it's just kind of it's and, and again you know i keep equating it back to how would i do it um how do i how, not how would i do it how do i do it right so mm -hmm. when i walk see somebody walking by on a, on a sunny day you know, I live on a busy street. People are constantly going for walks. And like I said, I have experience with gait analysis and I can see people that have gait issues mm -hmm. right now. I can't make that next leap into what's causing them, but you know, um, but I know what, I, you know, I have that experience. And so having AI being able to do that um, in the context of the moment. So is there ice on the sidewalk? Well, yeah. So I think are they are they running because it's raining? Well, that's going to be a completely different right a scenario than are they just walking their dog, right? Yes, and and so I think what's important here is that so say you were prof you did this professionally, like it was your job to analyze people's gates walking down, and, and there is it's, um, it's out there. <laughs> but say it was for you sitting in the window doing this. Oh right, okay, your okay. job, yeah. Making um, notes, taking so, notes. Got it. So I think so <laughs> when we look at these models, it's not going to be that you know we are just automating this analysis out there it's going to be you know the the analysis happens with you sitting there as a human and it says okay you know this person's walking it looks like there's ice on the road and stuff like that this is probably why they're walking the way they are yeah like shuffle also, or something. Yeah, yeah here's yeah. like all of the relevant research around people's gates you know at this temperature in this region mm -hmm. at this time of year and summarizing that for you so that you can use the AI to then make an informed decision. Because I think one of the very important things for all of us to keep in mind here is that, you know, Kasparov beat Deep Blue in 99. But what is the, what are the top chess teams today? They are human computer hybrid teams. They're people yeah. working in combination with a supercomputer. So I think you know, that was one of the places where like, all right, well, you know, computers have solved this, like it's a brute force problem. Like why would we ever need humans in this ever again? But lo and behold, like a, a hybrid cybernetic uh, environment is what is coming out with the best results. So I think as we look forward, you know, to how these technologies develop and how we end up using them, I think it's very important to look at other technologies that we thought were going to operate wholly on their own um, or, would you know operate uh, in a very automated way that have turned out to be much more of partnership technologies for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, and that's a great segue into the next part of the conversation: is what are the impacts? 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a, as a writer and a researcher and a podcaster, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was I was really quite taken aback by its ability to mm-hmm. create content. What I've been doing for t- plus twenty plus years, and it could do it a lot faster than I can. Um, and but not necessarily better. That's subjective. But it was fast, and it wasn't awful. And it, it, so uh, that was a real eye opener. Um, so, you know, what do you think the impact of this stuff is? I think in the short term, it's a bit of a novelty. I mean, people are using it. I mean, there's right Sonic, there's Jasper, at least on the content creation mm-hmm. side, there's Dolly, there's a bunch of these, uh, there's a few others I've come across. I can't think of right now, but, uh, that are generating images for people. Um, and certainly in, in the creative space has caused quite a stir. Um, right. But yeah. also in, in, in programming. You know, I was uh, talking to Forrester uh, last year about a piece I was working on, and this idea of Turing bots came yep. out, right? Yep. And they're like, well, you know, in the piece, it was like, well, these are a ways off. You know, a Turing bot, for people who don't know, is, mm-hmm. is machines writing code, right? So mm-hmm. AI-generated yep. computer code. So, well, that's here. I mean, that's ChatGPT. It's a Turing bot. It's writing level three. I think it passed Google's level three uh, entry-level programming. Yep. Yeah, passed the test. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very important for us to remember when, you know, chat GPT is, you know, acing these programming tests that it being a programmer is not the same as being a software developer. Um, And so when we're thinking about, okay, if it could pass like Google, like this level of like software test, is it going to replace all the software developers? No, because it's not a software developer because there's so many other things that go into the actual like process of software development. Um, and yeah, the the ex- explosion of capabilities around Turing bots, I think, you know, it has really um, taken us a bit by surprise collectively, because, you know, my colleagues have been looking at this space for several years, and Turing bots have been in place for several years, kind of developing along the lines of various techniques, using things like generative adversarial networks to create, you know, mm-hmm. test code and test data and stuff like that. But the ability to use large language models to generate code, to identify uh, things like uh, uh, exploits and vulnerabilities, that I think is a very significant change here. And one of the things that we're very excited about Wait, is, wait, let me, let me stop yeah, you for a second. To generate exploits and vulnerabilities? To identify. Oh, identify, thank you. Okay. But I mean, the same is However, true. The cyber, the cyber guys are looking at this because they've oh, been no, absolutely. for years to create code. So, yes, or, and I was going to say there is a, a looming uh, uh, challenge to the security environment around the capability of these models to generate malicious code as well as, you know, uh, as good clean code. So, you know, on the, on the positive side, we have, you know, the ability for enterprises and any other type of company to basically use these tools to help their developers along to say, you know, have a, a, another place to go in addition to, you know, your online web search or looking at stack overflow to get the piece of code that you need to complete that application or that query or whatever. Uh, But kind of uh, looking down the road, this is, you know, more of more of a way to kind of help upskill yourself as a developer. So, you know, these are not going to replace writing applications whole cloth. They're going to help people write applications and kind of speed the process along. Particularly, I think they'll be very helpful for closing uh, some of the skill gaps that are oh, existent and growing around, particularly yeah. the security and enterprise integration space, where it's, you know, very hard to bring together a lot of different enterprise 
large software systems, um, but also it's something you need to do. And same with the security space. So um, I think there's a lot of potential for Turing bots to help uh, close the gaps around this, as well as also to you know close the skill gaps or close some of the skill gaps in the data science space as well, because you can also use these bots to generate um, models to uh, do whatever other type of use case okay. you have. So you might you could use ChatGPT to give you uh, the framework to train a model to do revenue forecasting, for example, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and and we keep saying ChatGPT, but this is just generative AI. Yes, correct. I, writ large, I, that yes. we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, said, everyone's saying ChatGPT, so it's just yeah. kind of. Yeah. As I said to somebody else the other day, uh, ChatGPT has very quickly become the Kleenex um, of this space. <laughs> yeah, so, it's a new Xerox. Especially with the release of the uh, APIs for ChatGPT itself mm -hmm. and actually making itself a product that people can build off of. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, um, that's a, that's a, gives it a little bit more staying power than just the consumer facing application that we've had thus far. Absolutely. And I've been using some of that stuff and, and it's okay. It's okay. I mean, you got to, and to your point about from the code side, on the content creation side, it's the same thing. I've been using this example of a small business, right? Uh, let's take a, a pool company. And, um, you know, the ability to create a blog using ChatGPT, and then they could generate this blog that they've been wanting to do, but can't afford because writers are expensive. Yeah. Marketing people are expensive, right? And so, uh, and then they start getting some SEO out of it and then on and on and on, right? And, and so when people do show up to their website to book a service, they see a whole litany of, mm -hmm. of, of knowledge that this company has and they feel better about working with them and therefore they pick up two or three new customers a month. I think that the value for the small businesses there is not even, you know, that it can just kind of automatically do it, but it can take, you know, the... The owner who may not be a very good writer or there you go. Whatnot, right. but, maybe very uh, smart, but, but just has, not very yeah, good has a lot of subject matter expertise. Yeah, absolutely. They can write out, you know, five bullets about the most important thing about cleaning your pool in, mm -hmm. you know, the month of May or something like that. Exactly. And give it to a large language model and have that turned into a, a blog. Right. So basically like using so not asking the large language model to give it to impart any new knowledge, but asking it to build upon the knowledge mm -hmm. that you have or that the pool owner has mm -hmm. yep. and to put that together in a meaningful way. I think that is one of the huge values here. Absolutely. And, and that just, and, and you know, the whole, how many, how many developers jobs are open in this country right now, just in this country, 500,000. I, I was, yeah, something million, like that. I, think, yeah. I mean, worldwide it's, it's tens of millions of developers yeah. are in demand around the world. So if you're going to get rid of some of that grunt work, well, you know, that that's a, probably a net positive for just about everybody at the end yeah. of the day. I mean, <laughs> We've been through, we've been going through what, uh, a now 60 year process of abstraction from the bare metal of computers, right? Like you were ASCII so, code or whatever. Yeah. Is, right? So we went from basics to COBOL to second generation languages, third and fourth. Yeah. So every step in the software development world has been away oh, from interesting. I see where oh, you're going away from the basic complexity we, we're yes. introducing new complexities with analytics and stuff like that but i don't think about you know allocating you know certain like bits of memory when i'm running any program right like that is mm -hmm. something that is abstract away from me it's already handled and so with you know these uh turing bots that can be another step kind of along that way there's so, you know not getting rid of this but it's adding another layer of abstraction on top of it and you know it's similar to the way that we've had you know, low code interfaces, you know, you could very easily see a 
a, a tool that was set up where a business person comes in and says, I just type in, you know, my requirements mm-hmm. and then it generates like a prototype that, you know, isn't put into production, but then those both the requirements and the prototype then goes to a developer. So the developer can say, all right, well, I can just start going from this framework and I don't have to kind of build it out myself. And this is a custom built mm-hmm. framework to the requirements and not just like, you know, a random template that I pulled down. Right. Well, yeah, low code, no code, no code, right? I mean, that's the other side of it, right? And and the idea is to give, you know, the, remember the citizen developer thing, uh, to give business people the ability to improve workflows and business processes without having to learn how to code yeah. nor burden IT with this thing, right? And as long as they're secure and they run through a few checks, but that's all super auto. You can automate any of that stuff, right? I mean, that's really, you know, that's just, I wouldn't say automate. You can smooth it along significantly, but I hesitate for full automation on some of it. Well, things. I just think on the DevOps side, you're running test, you know, you're, you're running security automation tools against your code to make sure it doesn't have glare. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's yes. What I mean. That's yes, yes. When we get to that stage, yes, definitely yeah. automated. Agreed. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, when you're doing like when I'm talking to folks about this, like, and they're like, oh, well, can we trust the code that's generated by this? I mean, can you trust the code that's generated exactly. by any developer? Exactly. No, you can't trust the code that's generated by any developer. That's why right? we have QA. That's right. why we have testers. That's why right. we have, you know, dev and test and prod and QA separate from test. Right. Um, so like, because we can't trust humans to do this. So right. like, why would we trust a machine to do this? So it's, it's not what... about like totally automating everything. It's about improving the overall way that we do these things. Um, And I think, you know, that speaks to kind of like the effect that it'll have on like the job market overall, like, as with any kind of like new technology, some jobs, you know, will probably, you know, be uh, reduced and some eliminated. But on the other side, there will be new jobs that are created as well. So um, it's these things are always tricky to navigate because it does cause real pain for real humans. And that is a real thing that like Mm -hmm. sucks. So We, then we have to be sensitive to that and empathetic to those people and help those people not get left behind. But also there are new opportunities that are being created that, uh, you know, we should be taken advantage of. Right. People yeah, I hear people. you. I hear you. Yeah. Well, I want to take it back for a second. I was just yeah. to just uh, up a few minutes ago. This is a point I wanted to make because I think this is a great comparison to my buddy, um, Arthur Germain. He runs a... Um, a small marketing shop on Long Island called Brand Telling. We were just talking today about ChatGPT, and uh, and he compared it to a really good research librarian. Mm. Right, I think that that is a good metaphor. Me yes. too. It's like it, it, so they they don't they're not an expert in whatever you're looking in architecture or engineering, but they know how to help you get the things that you want quickly, and 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 help you speed your. Uh, project along, whatever that is, right? And without them, it's almost impossible to look at the Library of Congress. You, mm-hmm. You'd be dumbfounded. You wouldn't even know where to start. But you start by going to talk to that research librarian, right? And they know that library. Yes. And particularly right? if we look at uh, the Bing chat implementation, yes. I think this is a yeah. really good example of this because one of the things that chat GPT itself, and I mean, large language models overall, is they're not able to cite facts like we were talking about before. But the Bing chat implementation it is using a combination of large language models and search to produce mm-hmm. answers that are also cited back to the uh, yeah, yeah. origin source of their information. And that's really what ChatGPT itself is missing and what most people have cited as its biggest 
Achilles heel right now is there's no, no, like you said, you don't know where it's getting its information from and you can't look in the box to find out. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so once you start to get that attribution capability, that's when we really start to get to the research librarian level. Right. But even then you can have uh, incorrect results. So yes. yeah. I've asked it, you know, who is Rowan Curran? And the results that I've gotten back have combined uh, multiple Twitter profiles that are not me, but use like, but my name is just their Twitter profile right. um, sure. with my Twitter profile into a single answer. Uh, okay. So even when there's attribution, you can still have some confusion in the answer, um, which is why I think when you're, if you're using these things to generate new knowledge or to cite facts, you really need to be able to drill back into it and say, where did this come okay. from? Can I verify this and all that type of stuff? So um, two questions before we go, because I know we're coming up on our, and thank you, we're going a little over, but um, first of all, do you think it's the hype is deserved? And then what's it going to do to SEO? So I think that the, is the hype deserved? I think that the hype is a reflection of real world capabilities of this technology. And I think that it is going to uh, continue to translate into really interesting and useful applications and that we cannot even imagine what the applications that are built with this technology are going to be in even three years time, I would say. I think that, you know, doesn't meet the level of hype that it currently has. I think that depends upon who we're talking to, right? Like some people are saying, well, you know, chat GPT, the end of search, you know, this completely changes the entire world overnight. Well, no, I don't think that that's the case. But is the world going to change in the next two, three years because of all this? I think so. Absolutely. Uh, what does this do to SEO? I think that it continues to change SEO. You know, and SEO has continued to evolve ever since, you know, it was first developed. So if you if you roll back to uh, when Google integrated BERT, as part of their uh, search solution in 2020, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, so they integrate as part of how they produce results and summers are ice results. There oh, I are, didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, so there are blog posts from then about how to adapt your SEO to the newer setup of Google. So even back then, people were like, well, what is this going to do to SEO? How do we adapt this? You know, it's just going to be another evolution. So if you... So if we take, you know, the first iteration of this, and we'll see, you know, what Google does with BARD and whatnot, but we'll take Bing Chat, for example. They integrate sponsored links and ads as part of, like, how search results mm -hmm. appear in there. And it's essentially pulling back search results and synthesizing them for you. So if you're using, like, if your search results already appeared at the top of Bing search results, they're going to be integrated as part of the Bing Chat results anyway because it's looking at the top set of results. So what, you know, is included in SEO and whatnot may change, but I don't, it's not like the end of SEO the same way it's not the end of search. It's just continuing to change the way the technology and people's approach to the technology operates. Well, it might make it better. I mean, it might make for better content. I mean, SEO is search engine optimization um, and people game SEO continuously to try to get on the first page of Google. Top three is really where you need to be to, for it to matter. And um, and it's just a huge game, right? You know. Well, so at that point, I think it might make the uh, arms race around that like gaming of the system much more extreme. But I don't think that it 
uh, is going to well, yeah. I, I guess if my uh, and I'm kind of speculating here as we all are at the moment, but you know if if the response you get is is useful in its own right, then you're not clicking on anything. You know what I mean? And so that whole aspect of, of search goes away. You're getting a, a response that's useful. Um, and and then, you know, you're not clicking through to the source material, which has all kinds of implications for publishers. Um, but that seems to be the way it's going. That seems to be what it's going to look like in some form or other. And so um, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. Anyone has an answer at the moment until we start to see what these models look like from particularly Google, obviously, is the you know 8000 pound gorilla of this question. So, uh, but it's going to be an interesting ride. And things like you said, things are going to change a lot based on this. So. Very, very much so. Yes. And it's one of these things. It's a, it's such an exciting space because so much is happening, but that also makes it extremely hard to predict what is going to happen mm -hmm. outside of even 12, 18 months. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, the curve is just exponential. Yeah. And it's not just the curve, but there's so much active research in so many areas around the large language models. Like whether it's, you know, like we're talking about interrogating the inside of them, getting them to run mm -hmm. more efficiently, like adding more data to them, um, applying them to specific situations. Right. Like any one of these areas could have significant progress that would advance the space in, you know, X direction or Y direction. And, you know, and, who knows which, which of those it goes in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And who knows what advancement in each one of those areas is going to be adopted more wide scale and, you know, on and on and on. Right. Exactly. Uh, and, and then you add, you know, high speed networking to the mix and now everything changes again. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So on, you know, so one technology builds on another and it just reinforces. And then you have network effects. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah network. Yeah. Effect, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Rowan, thank you uh, very much. Fascinating conversation. Hopefully we can have more of these in the future. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a really wonderful conversation. If you like this episode, please tell your friends and subscribe. We post new episodes every week. If you'd like to join our mailing list, become a guest, or suggest topics for future episodes, you can find us on LinkedIn on our landing page at anchor.fm slash inside DT or at inside DT.net. Talk to you soon.